Central. This is Tech Radio. All things computers, gadgets and web happening right now in Ireland. Hear us anytime on iTunes or download from techcentral.ie. Hello there and welcome to Tech Radio, the number one Irish tech podcast with you every Friday morning with your favourite podcasting app or of course Friday evenings on RTE Radio. My name is Dusty Rhodes. This is show number 943. Joining me as ever is our editor-in-chief, Niall Kitson, who is a massive, lifelong fan of Elon Musk. Oh, come on. Let's, let, let's, let's not go mad with the trolley. How long have Asterix. we been covering this Twitter story? Oh, it's been going on for it. You know, I think that, uh, this is one of these things where Elon was just one of his stupid comments in public going, ha, 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 I should just buy Twitter. And then he got goaded along by the publicity behind it and went, I'm going to buy it. And then it was too late. Yeah. He had to yeah. do it. He, he had to do it. He was legally obliged to do so. And if it meant it was just for him, apparently, it was easier just to swallow the loss, if you will, and go on with his only I can fix it routine um, than go to court and have this thing dragged out forever. So I don't know. I mean, this, Twitter has gone from being a social network with a trolling problem to a billionaire's plaything, um, who doesn't want it. Let's face it; he doesn't I, want to own it. I think that is unfair. That's 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 not the story. That it's gone to a billionaire's plaything. I think he's just landed in. It's still a social network. And the thing is, is that it's in the private hands. And as we saw during the week, he's fired the board. Everybody who was in charge there, right? You're all gone. He didn't like him anyway, so it's no surprise. Uh, and it's now, for the moment, just him running the show. Yeah, and. and- a lot of the managers that were there, the ones that he didn't fire, are leaving. <laughs> so, you know, it's not good. He is going to be the only guy left there. The latest thing mm. is that I, Twitter employs, I think, seven and a half thousand people in total. He has floated firing half of that. Half of that, you know, and setting up this content moderation council in order to deal with the trolling problem. I mean, what has happened since, you know, he, he went in with his stupid sink um, was sort of the level of hate speech has skyrocketed on Twitter, basically as a, let's see what we can get away with now that there's a new guy in charge. Is he really this free speech absolutist that he claims to be? Or is he going to have to grow up and start participating in the real world um, and not annoy his shareholders in companies that are actually doing important things like Tesla and SpaceX? I mean, this is terrible. This has been the worst business move I've seen in a long time because um, earlier this week, uh, like I've got a a blue tick. Have you got a blue tick? Beside no, your, beside I, I your rarely, profile. I'm signed up for Twitter, but I rarely use it. It's, it's basically, you know, uh, all it is is a sign of validation saying this person is who they say they are. And usually they are just doled out to people that have, you know, some sort of um, uh, weight or there's importance as to, to what they say. So it's very much, yes, it absolutely was Dusty said this because we've got the profile with the tick saying, showing that it's verified. And Twitter went through a very brief period of sort of saying, okay, if you've got a reasonable claim on something, uh, 
here you go, just just let us know and you'll validate it. My validation process was I basically posted a tweet saying, why am I validated? And they got in touch with me and said, okay, here you go. Um, so it was not hard. Now, the plan, uh, according to Elon Musk, is that Twitter has to make money somehow. So this is going to be through a combination of cost cutting and revenue generation. And his first big idea for generating revenue was to charge 20 euro a month for your blue tick, right? Stephen King went on and said, nope, I'm, I'm out. If you, if you want to charge $20 a month for a blue tick beside my name, I'm gone. Because Stephen King doesn't need a blue tick beside his name. Everyone knows who he is. Everybody knows the profile that he posts from. I, I, a, I would, I would argue that Stephen King more than anybody needs a blue tick. Because that's ah, the problem is that you don't know if that is the real. I could set up an account tomorrow saying that I'm Stephen King. And even though you say everybody knows what their real account is, I could find somebody who doesn't. Well, you you definitely could. You definitely could find yeah. someone. Who so that's why I think know. the blue tick is a, a, is a good thing. Uh, I think paying for it. Well, certainly not $20 a month. Elon Musk no. then went on and he said, OK, how about eight? He was willing to bargain down without prompting by more more than 50%. Yeah, they know. I'm I'm arguing with a billionaire between $20 and $8 a month for something I'm already paying $5 for. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. It's, you know, it's absolute nonsense. Yeah. Uh, It's not going to fly. Uh, One person I saw posted on Twitter and said, you know, there's X amount of, you know, blue tick accounts out there, you know, Imagine if everybody paid. I was like, oh. well, you can imagine away. Like, yeah. what kind of fanboy are you? Yeah. That's, <laughs> Nobody's that's, going to be paying for this thing. That's exactly the same thing that Netflix said. Imagine if everybody paid. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, yeah. anyway, we'll see what happens with uh, 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 Twitter. We're, I, I think it's fair to say neither of us are particular Elon Musk Twitter fans. Certainly not no. in the in in the chief twit incarnation yeah, 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 of exactly, Mr. Musk. Exactly. I was going to call him a, a, a TWAT. Um, oh! And then I was looking just out of pure badness uh, 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 to see if anybody had registered twatter.com and somebody has. <laughs> so there you go. All right, listen, what else in the news? Uh, oh, we are mourning the loss, or are we, of Google Hangouts. Google Hangouts. Yeah, I find it hilarious. Well, hilarious? I kind of do, actually. Mildly titillating. Mildly titillating that for, you know, when it comes to messaging and email, Gmail is pretty much it now. I mean, it's not, but it is, you know, like it's it's almost up there. You know, you, you would say, oh, I'll Okay, you wouldn't quite say I'll Gmail you, but I, I think it's fair to say most people have a Gmail account. Certainly everyone that has one wants one. Like when I got one, it was still invite only. Um, but, you know, and if you have an Android device, you've got to have one, um, I, even I if you're it, not using it. It will be fair to say that, and I won't say everybody, but a hell of a lot of people have got a Google account. I don't think everybody yes. uses Gmail. Well, I think, as you say, they use it for their phone or, or for maps or YouTube yeah. or whatever it happens to be. So it's just bizarre that for a company that one of its core products that people use is email, uh, and they do a pretty good job of it mm-hmm. at that, um, cannot get instant messaging right. 
this was this was to their competitor for iMessage. But Google Hangouts was more than a messaging app. It was like a social network, was it not? Mm. Yeah, and uh, this is something Google has really stumbled with. And it's a lesson for big tech in general um, because you see companies stray outside of their core competency mm. and they end up getting smashed ultimately. You know, uh, it happened with Microsoft with hardware for a long time. They seem to have righted the ship on that mm. now, but it was slow progress. Um, uh, I mean, Google, they they have had their fair share of misses in the hardware space as successes. And, so, and, uh, and, and everything. And actually, it's one of the good things about Google, before you start slamming them and, and painting them as a, a disaster area, uh, Google are really entrepreneurial in spirit, I think, in that they try a lot of things. They, they try do. a lot of things and they fail with a lot of things. A lot of things just don't work out. A lot of things yeah. are huge successes. I mean, they started off with search, okay? Mm. And as you say, uh, that's doing brilliantly for them. The email kind of came along. Was, eh, yeah. The email is phenomenally popular. Uh, I find that uh, the Drive and their office package, more and more people are starting to use that. Uh, YouTube is, a, well, of course, they bought that. But they, they've done maps is the, is the other thing I was thinking of. Yes. Yeah. So search, email and maps. I think they, yeah. they excel at. Yeah. Uh, but some things they've really struggled with. And Google Hangouts is one of them. And it's gone. <laughs> All right. Also, and, uh, and it's gone. Also this week, we are mourning the loss of something even older than Google Hangouts. And that is the, the humble fax machine. Well, in the UK, uh, oh. I, I thought this was a fascinating story. I thought this, I thought this was... A much more interesting story in the end than I thought it would be. I was just ready for, you know, a three minute, let's, let's mourn the on. end well, of the fax what, what, machine. What has happened that has entranced you so much? Well, okay. It's, it's more sort of who was operating it. Um, because there, it's, I didn't know a lot of this, right? But uh, in England, where this is being pulled, for one, there's still hundreds of fax machines in operation with the NHS okay. for various reasons. Uh, and the fax service itself, it actually has is provided for in law, right? So if you're a BT who operated fax machines, apparently they were the only, uh, there was two companies that did it. Uh, BT was the, the main one. There's another one that operated them in Hull. For some reason, um, but uh, Ofcom had put together a basically a kind of a basic service package that telcos have to offer, right? And with BT, it's like internet, uh, phone calls, but also fax. Ah. Fax is part of it, um, and fax now has been is being taken off that because nobody nobody uses it anymore. It's just kind of, you know, fallen by the wayside. But I'm sure there are some companies out there still relying on it. We talked about the Minitel a couple of years ago. The Minitel far outlasted its uh, traditional lifespan everywhere mm. else in the world. In France, because it did really well with secure site-to-site location uh, uh, communications mm. for banks. You know, it still found that. So 
maybe, you know, the fax machine was still finding its niche in sort of medical records, in contract law and that sort of thing, where you would need a scanned copy as as well as a what they call a, a wet signature mm. uh, as well. So I'm sure there are very limited circumstances where it still had a use, but now uh, it is going to be no more. Uh, the assumption is that you're, you know, signing things, but you're then scanning them, even if you're just using your phone uh, and you're able to email them. Well, that, that is the assumption. It. All right. And you would think that that, that that and that is a quicker way. But in some ways, is it more secure? Because once it goes online, well, God knows where it could end up or who could access it. And if it's in PDF format, it can be manipulated and all that kind of stuff. Uh, facts, if you think about it, it's A to B and it's hard copy. So maybe, and, and anyway, speaking of uh, uh, of <laughs> signing things, before COVID, uh, the, one of my dealings with uh, various government departments and stuff like that was I had a form that I had to uh, get from Department A and then post it to Department B, all right? During COVID, Department A would email it to me, brilliant, and then I would email it to Department B, brilliant, okay? Mm. Had to do the thing again last week. So Department A emailed it to me, brilliant. Department B told me, no, you have to post it. <laughs> it's like, why are we going backwards? Oh. So I ended up printing this email and putting it into an envelope and then finding stamps, of which I didn't have. And then I had to go find a post office. Oh, I was just nuts. Listen, last story of the week. Uh, TikTok in uh, China are uh, accessing data from the EU, well, are they? Uh, apparently it's it's buried there in the terms of conditions. As, as mm. you know, TikTok has a, has a base here in Ireland. Um uh, they look after, uh, I think, the trust center is is kind of what they what they call it. So it's look <laughs> look at moderation and legal compliance. <laughs> Go on, yeah, I, I, whatever right, way okay, you want I'll, to name these I'll, things. I'll stop laughing. Um, Go on. Yeah, yeah. So uh, of course, as members of the EU, we are uh, protected by GDPR, which looks at, of course, the data we generate, but also the way it is processed. Right. So there's, you know, the information that we generate, say, within Ireland, but to make sure that if we do something on Google, that it is protected by European law as opposed to being sent to the States and not being protected by the absence of American law. So it's the difference between sort of owning and processing data. Uh, we're, we're protected by, by both here. Um, ByteDance, which is the parent company of TikTok uh, based China, uh, however, take a, a slightly different view. Um, and uh, it has emerged that employees have access to the data of uh, European citizens, but also uh, UK citizens as well, seeing as they're not, uh, they're not under GDPR anymore. Um, so TikTok's um, uh, version is, yeah, we, we allow a small number of our employees uh, based in, and they they have a, a list of companies um, and a, a list of countries. Uh, so Brazil, Canada, Israel, Japan, they, and the US, they all have access to European user data for TikTok. But only a small number of employees have access to that information. So that makes sure it's okay. Um, so I don't know how this is going to shake down. Um their argument is, yeah, we're still subject to GDPR, um, but we do this. Uh, also, I, d- I don't know how you can square that particular circle. I just think uh, that TikTok, I think it'd be fair to say, have got a bit of a trust problem with people anyway. Yeah. 
Yeah. Uh, you know, yeah. so uh, that this doesn't particularly help it. But then the other thing you've got to remember is, are they actually doing personally identifying information? I mean, can they see, can they say that I, Dusty Rhodes, watched that video for 10 seconds about whatever the subject was, some, some guy who can, who can fire 15 ping pong balls out of his bottom at the same time, whatever the hell that happens to be. <laughs> it's, you know I mean? can, can they say that I watched that in my house at that time? I don't think well, so. This, this is the question. And, and also, can the Chinese government well, I'm, I'm sure it's one of the leading questions of the day. My viewing habits with the uh, the Chinese government. <laughs> your, your, your TikTok <laughs> habit, Dusty. We shall leave it there for this week, Niall. As always, thank you for keeping us up to date with the news. Remember, of course, if you want to stay up to date with the news, you can get the lowdown on all things tech in Ireland and around the world with hourly updates. We do daily newsletters as well and more at our website, techcentral.ie. This is Tech Central, your weekly tech podcast from Ireland. We know that genes are basically a recipe for our bodies, and that can include information on the kinds of conditions that we could suffer from in the future. Dr. Nicholas Pontikos is a senior research fellow in the Institute of Ophthalmology in University College London. He spoke with Niall Kitson about his project Eye2Gene, a device which tests for genes associated with rare eye diseases. Nicholas, we sometimes like to get a sense of somebody's academic journal before talking to them about their project. Tell us a little bit about sort of how you came from uh, an undergraduate degree in computer science all the way out to um, personalization of medicine. Uh, yeah, sure. So my um, my original undergrad was in uh, computer science. So uh, that was between 2003 and 2007. I originally got into computers because I grew up uh, in the 90s and that was, a, I think, a, um, a booming time for the internet and video games. <laughs> so that got me really interested in computers. Um, and having completed my degree, I, uh, so I had some personal, um, well, basically my, uh, my mother was unwell and got sick and I started realizing actually it would be really good if I could use computers to... Um, uh, help advance medicine. Um, so I decided to do a degree in uh, bioinformatics um, at Imperial College. Uh, and that was from, um, I finished that I think in 2009. And having finished that, I then decided to go work in bioinformatics. And I went to uh, Cambridge to work in the European Bioinformatics Institute for two years, where I worked on a big a protein database called Uniprot. Um, and soon after that, I decided to do a PhD in the field. And so I did my PhD uh, at the University of Cambridge and I did a PhD basically in uh, bioinformatics and more generally in genetics. And having finished that in 2013, I then came uh, to UCL as a postdoc. Uh, and that's where I started working with a lot of different uh, groups working on rare diseases. And specifically, I started working more and more on rare eye diseases. Um, so that's how that's kind of my um, my journey. 
So uh, that attraction to rare diseases and rare eye diseases, did that come from sort of a, a problem solving perspective that here's potentially a very small data set that is going to need an awful lot of development to become useful? Yes, absolutely. So rare eye diseases are uh, quite, um, I would say, ne- neglected uh, in terms of research because they are individually rare, although as a, as a, as a collective, they are a quite a common cause of uh, sight impairment in younger, younger individuals. Um, so yes, the attraction of working on something which was under, under research was interesting. And also being able to combine my expertise in, in bioinformatics and working with genetics data with a growing interest in working with retinal imaging data. That's definitely, I found that very appealing. So one of the things that we hear about uh, AI as applied in medicine is that it's an aid to diagnosis or an aid to decision making, but in your case with ITGene, an aid in diagnosis. So tell us a little bit about some of the problems that the uh, healthcare system was having in getting people diagnosed with a rare condition. Yeah, so the, the healthcare system um, is, uh, at least in in you know, in, in England, there's no secret that it's under a lot of strain. Um, and one thing I think that in England and in the world, there's a shortage of specialists. Um, and so being able to uh, put specialist knowledge into an AI system is very attractive. Um, so we can make the, that's, that knowledge more globally available and in, in a way, uh, dem- de- democratize that's, that type of knowledge. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I think that's fascinating that you've got the, the global perspective on there as opposed to just sort of looking to solve a, a local problem. I suppose when you're putting together a data set, um, it's, it's all good regardless of where the data actually comes from. Absolutely. Uh, we have to start locally. Uh, and we're in a lucky position um, at Morfield's Eye Hospital that we have access to these data sets, which have been curated by specialists um, who, who work at, at, the, at the eye hospital. Uh, and so we are able to train an AI system to, to replicate that expertise. So let's talk a little bit about your current project, ITGene. Uh, we've talked a little bit about how resources are stretched. So what problem does it solve and what kind of pressure does it take off the system? So it makes uh, it makes a very specialist service more widely available uh, is the first thing. So availability is something important. Uh, you would, since there are very few of these um, uh, specialists in these types of diseases, in the UK and in and globally, uh, anyone who wants to see such a specialist will have to wait for a very long time to see one, and uh, they might want to see, have to see one privately, which will cost um, a lot of money as well. Um, obviously, that that option is still there, but for people who cannot wait or who cannot afford to see a specialist, then at least we're hoping an AI system will offer an alternative to that. So uh, when you're getting to the stage where you're kind of um, reducing 
the need for uh, for specialist expertise. It opens up an entire world of uh, how do you sort of preempt or remove the need for uh, getting people onto that long train that starts at, you know, identifying a symptom to finally getting a, a diagnosis. And do you see any, any application for gene when it comes to maybe dealing with children or adults that are pre-morbid, that, that haven't really manifested uh, themselves yet, but potentially uh, are actually carrying genes that down the line uh, would, would end up becoming um, uh, an issue? Yes, yeah, so th- there's um, there's a lot, a few interesting points uh, in in your question. So, firstly, the you mentioned the di- the diagnostic process, which can be very long. So, the term that's commonly used uh, to describe is diagnostic odyssey, because uh, you're correct that these patients uh, it will take it often takes a long time for them to get a proper diagnosis. Given how um, uncommon their disease is, they will have to see very uh, a, a number of different specialists often, uh, and you know, well, even getting to those specialists in the first place, getting to the, to see the right people, that already is a challenge in it, in itself. So definitely having an AI uh, system that can help with that will be very beneficial. And then your point about uh, patients or individuals who are pre-morbid. Um, so I'm guessing this is around, the point is around the early detection of the conditions. Um, so that's obviously very important as well. And uh, in order to do that, we need to really have that early uh, early data. So we need to have longitudinal uh, data. So we need to know, uh, we need to go back, I guess, ha- go back in time in a way and have images of patients before they've, they were diagnosed. Because often what can happen is the patient, by the time the patient uh, shows up in a clinic, they will have had the disease for a very long time, but we might not have the images. Uh, they might have had some imaging done in the past, but we might not have access to that. So being able to get access to those images will be useful. Another, another way of doing that maybe, uh, which is uh, something we're, we're looking into is going uh, families, for example, looking at families, because in a family, you've got uh, you know many generations of individuals, some older, some younger. And so once you've established uh, what the, gen- the gene diagnosis, the, what, what the diagnosis is for a specific um, member of family, say it's an older one, then you can go to the younger individuals and maybe if they are also carriers of that specific predisposing gene, you can see what an earlier form of the condition looks like in a retinal scan. And so that can give you that information as well. So there's an awful lot of speculation involved really uh, when you're when you're looking for uh, a data set that by definition is going to be very hard to assemble. Um, there, there, there's a massive potential for, for hit and miss, I suppose, as well. Yeah. So usually uh, when, so the good thing about the, um, the, the uh, what makes it a, a bit more objective uh, is that when diseases we're working with, we need a, a genetic test to be able to confirm them. So it's not just somebody telling you 
okay, I think it's this disease or that disease. It's it's not subject. It's not that subjective. It's more. I would say it's more objective. So once somebody has a genetic test, then we know that we can label. I mean, we can label that person, or that or the images. Or I should say we can label the images, uh, the retinal scans from that person with that specific condition, which means we can then train the AI system on those images. Uh, so then we are in a position to collect images. We we have a definite label, which is one of the most important things in AI is to having an, an accurate label and a reliable label. Um, so we can then go and collect those images. But yes, there are challenges in actually collecting those images sometimes, especially when we look, want to look at images retrospectively, which might not be widely available. That. Finally, that, sorry, does that does that make sense or or um... it doesn't it does indeed yeah yeah okay great um, finally uh, in looking at sort of the the end point of the project uh, if you will where do you expect um, itogene to be available is this something that's going to be in specialist hospitals or is it something that might even be making its way to to sort of the GP office yeah that's a very important and intri- uh, and interesting point thank you for for raising that so um that's the, that's that's really key i think in um understanding the ai in general um if you're training an ai system in a certain environment then you will most of the time you know you can only reliably predict its performance in that environment so currently we are using, we are working in a specialist hospital environment. So we've got specialist imaging. So uh, we are in the first iteration of ITGene. We will, it will be deployed in eye hospitals that have access to the type of imaging on which the ITGene AI system has been trained. But in the longer run, we are also looking to collect imaging from the community. So you mentioned GPs, um, specific, I think more in the UK, at least, uh, opticians would be the, would be what would qualify as GPs for, for eye care. Uh, so we would, we are looking to collect imaging from, uh, opticians as well. And this is with, um, work with, uh, Konstantinos, uh, Balaskas at Moorfields Eye Hospital, who is working on AI systems for AMD in uh, in community opti- optometrists. Wow. So uh, when you go in next to get a, you know, a prescription for a pair of glasses updated or you you have a, a, an initial concern for something at the consumer level, you could in fact end up getting much more information uh, back from your optician than you would have expected. Yes. Yeah. And this is a wider, there's even a wider sort of, um, research area called uh, oculomics that um, I know two researchers at, um, at UCL and Moorfields who are working on that, Siegfried Wagner and Piers Keen. So um, yeah, absolutely. You could start getting more information about your um, blood pressure and uh, your risk for different conditions. Um, so yeah, the future is, is quite interesting. Obviously we need to take into account you know we're not how we're feeding that information back and obviously we do not want to create more health anxiety or more uh, 
uh, referrals than necessary in a system which is already strained. But yes, definitely, there's a lot of potential. And that was Dr. Nicholas Pantikos from University College London chatting with Niall Kitson. Nicholas is in Dublin for Fighting Blindness Retina Conference, which is taking place this weekend. For more information on that, visit fightingblindness.ie. And that link will be in the show notes on your podcast player right now. That's it for our show for this week. Do remember you can get the lowdown on all things tech in Ireland with hourly updates, daily newsletters and more at our website techcentral.ie. Until next time, from myself, Dusty Rhodes and from Niall Kitson, have a great weekend. Get Tech Radio. Subscribe for free with iTunes or download on demand at techcentral.ie. Tech Radio is produced by digitalaudioproductions.com. Tech Central.